0: This is a Reasons to Be Cheerful
1: bonus episode in partnership with Oatly. Hello! Hello! How are you? You know, really good. And, you know, I think it's difficult during lockdown, Jeff. where, you know, we can't sit opposite each other and, you know, gaze... Into each other's eyes, and I think a lot of people, you know, I, I, and I say this to you, Jeff. I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast <laughs> didn't realize, you know, the level of sexual chemistry between us.
2: And See, I, know, I, I, know, I almost think it that's it. what's kept it going for this long. Ed, I think it's the whole Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd in in Moonlighting. There's a nice up to date reference point, but it's the whole will they, won't they that I think people enjoy so much.
1: Well, look, I, I'm, Jeff, I'm here today. To, to really tell you uh, that, that I am in love with you, and I think you know I want us to, when it's safe and legal to do so, <laughs> uh, run away uh, uh, and elope, and you know <laughs> uh, I think you and I could start a wonderful life together. Finally, to the,
2: the resolution that our listeners have been waiting for these past few years. If you're particularly keen of it, uh, you, you you may have noticed uh, that isn't Ed I mean I think most people we would have got away with it but my co-host for this special episode is comedian Matt Ford hello hello everyone I'm sorry for that distressing introduction which I didn't plan
3: I just Mm. sort of went with whatever probably says a lot about me Freud would have a field Mm. day with me impersonating Ed Miliband and if if we ever need
2: if we ever need somebody to write reasons to be cheerful fanfic you could be the man it must be out there it's got to be out there (laughs) Surely two photogenic fellows like yourselves <laughs> There are there are things you don't google. I've learned the hard way over the years that there are things not to go searching for in the uh, in the Google search bar. Uh, now let me explain what this this episode is. It's a bonus episode. It's in partnership with Oatly. And the reason we decided to partner with Oatly for this is that they've done some research around getting people to switch to a plant-based, climate-friendly diet. And that is a great topic for us too, how you nudge people to make that change to help tackle the climate crisis. So just so you know what's going on, it is a commercial partnership prompted by Oakley's research, but what you're going to hear is our usual style of conversation around the idea. The guests uh, are all people we've booked independently, and we booked them for no other reason than they're the people with expertise, experience, and insight into the subject. But why Matt Ford then? (laughs) Um, Matt, I, uh, I hate to break this to you, but you're becoming a problem oh dear yeah if it if it, if it, if it makes you feel any better uh i I am a problem <laughs> so it's it's men of a certain age um i'm gonna just run through some of this 49 percent of men aged 45 to 75 don't consider the environmental impact of food and drinks before making a purchase half of all 16 to 24 year olds agree that they'd consider eating more plant-based products to reduce their environmental impact uh, whilst only 32 percent of men uh, in that 45 to 75 bracket do the same and this isn't a lack of caring for the environment it's 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 seems to be more a lack of understanding or sometimes tradition this research suggests that a staggering three quarters of men between 45 and 75 agree that eating meat or dairy is part of their way of life um so i mentioned you're sort of hurtling towards 40 yeah (laughs) in what ways do or don't you feel that you are becoming the archetypal grumpy old man
3: well, so I'm 38. I turned 38 a few months ago in November. Um, I hadn't until today really considered that I was hurtling towards 40 sorry, or that this sorry. was part of my identity or who I was, <laughs> but it is a fact. So it's something I probably need to come to terms with. I, don't, I mean, with regards to food, I think it's not so much an age thing for me. It's with, you know, if you're interested in politics in the world, which is a lot of us, you can't help but take in... The fact that climate change is a big issue, and that this is covered in places beyond the news, this is the stuff that we talk about as a society now. And if you want to be an ethical consumer, and I truly believe most people want to be, then of course you start to—you can't help <laughs> assess your own choices and, and behavior. For me, and I—I um, I consider myself a, a meat eater, but I guess I would call myself a meat reducer because—and that's a phrase my girlfriend told me about. My girlfriend's vegetarian and we live together. So purely out of pragmatism, really, if we're cooking meals, there's no point cooking a meat version and a veggie version. So since we moved in together, I've barely had meat in the house and I haven't missed it. And then on top of that, <laughs> a few months ago,
2: I got gout. What? Yeah, 37. I-, I thought this was only what sort of very old Bon vivants got after a lifetime of eating Stilton and drinking port. Well, that's what I thought, yes, basically Henry VIII. So there's all sorts of triggers. Meat
3: is one of the top ones. Meat, fish and dehydration. Now, in the last year or so, in the last three or four years, I've barely eaten meat, I'm allergic to fish and I drink loads of water. So it's been a slight mystery, but um, I'm still (laughs) going through treatment
2: at the moment but it's about high uric acid levels in the blood. Here's something I wanted to ask you about. So, so we're both from pretty similar working-class backgrounds, and yet here we are, rattling around in London, uh, in the media, on the peripheries of it in my case, less so in yours. Um, now, now, I know scepticism about a plant-based diet is is across the social classes. However, um, sometimes I do think of the royal family and Anthony bringing his vegetarian girlfriend home and i I feel that perhaps it's something that sits a bit more comfortably in this life than it does back home do do you have any sense of that i mean i think of a couple of my mates from nottingham i can imagine
3: a couple of them maybe being veggie one of them you know would be no never
2: (laughs) so what what would he he say right right so it's part of his manliness right you I want meat for, dear? I want. You can't beat a steak, can you? So I might
3: cut down a bit, but I'm having a pepperoni pizza. Um, curry, you can't have curry without meat. <laughs> he um, whines a about...
2: lot. What about when you go see Nottingham Forest? Because there is that football club, um, Forest Green Rovers, that have gone completely vegan, You know, both in terms of uh, uh, players, but in terms of the catering that's available to you as a fan. I don't
3: think... You know what? There'd be a bit of... Some people would kick up a fuss. You know what it reminds me of Slight is... Do you remember when... Was it the pies at Wembley went halal? Yes. And there was this big uproar, and you're like... You did, you never cared what sort of meat was in there. That was unidentifiable meat for (laughs) generations, and you didn't care. You shovel it down half cut at half time, all of a sudden, you're an animal rights activist about your pie at half time. I think there'd be initial pushback, and then it's the way the world's going, anyway. And I think you know, football fans are quite a diverse community, so a lot of them would be on board with it. But in the end, if it's salty enough. And it tastes all right. <laughs> I mean, it's not, do you think of the food that's been served to football grounds?
2: It's the if worst it's gre- food you can get your hands on. Greasy and salty Oh, my enough.
3: word. Yeah, so in, yeah. in a way, they're the, they're the perfect yeah. audience because this yeah. would surely be an improvement on what's
2: been yeah. served up. So what we're hitting on maybe is not ideas around what plant-based food is or, or particularly scepticism around the climate crisis. It's just change. Well, It's just, as you get to a certain age, especially if you're a man, you're more likely to dig your heels in and be resistant to change.
3: I think there's an element of that. I think the sorts of people that perhaps will be more likely to kick up a fuss, it's never just about the thing, is it? These things exist in a wider context, which is you're not allowed to do this stuff anymore. And that's the perception. People say, well, I can't say this anymore, and I can't do that, and I can't buy this, and I can't go there. I was told that was the right word to use, and now I can't <laughs> eat my pie! You know, it's like, not another thing. It feels like every part of their life is, is under attack. Yeah, and, and the pace of change feels very, very quick. Yeah. So in the end, it, it's not even about whether they would even have a pie at half-time. It's a symbol of something else. And that's the danger, is... The way you frame
2: these arguments is so crucial. I think you're right, and I'm sure that'll come up in the conversations we have today. What we're going to be looking at is why what we'll call men of a certain age are more reluctant to move towards a plant-based, climate-friendly diet, and and also how to nudge people's behaviour on this, which conversations are effective and which ones aren't. First, we're going to get a refresher course on how this is pretty much the most important thing you can do in terms of your individual behaviour and the climate crisis. And to do that for us, we have Tony Vanelli from Veganuary. Then we're going to be talking to a nursery owner, Claire Taylor, who found herself at the centre of an astonishing, let's call it a furore, when she transformed her business to being plant-based. And I'm particularly keen to talk to Claire about what she's learned about bringing people along with you. And then we're lucky enough to have one of the world's leading thinkers on what persuades people to adopt a plant-based diet, and, and also what is unhelpful. It's social psychologist and author Melanie Joy. Fantastic guest. I'm looking forward to chatting to all of them. Matt, what, what are you uh, hoping to get out of this?
3: Well, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, by pure chance, you've come to me at a time when I'm way more receptive to this stuff. And one thing I would say about Oatly another non-milk, products that are an oat drink or an oat cereal wetter improves the flavor of cereal it's actually a superior thing so it's not about saying oh if you and obviously it is about this i think people do care and that's what's driving a lot of it but also i think part of the sales pitch should be if you're having particularly special k tastes way better than with
2: dairy yeah i, I will vouch for cheerios it, oh i, I want to go one better and vouch for cheerios
3: Doesn't it help the flavor? Actually, this tastes better. I found it really hard to go back to semi-skimmed milk. It's so Moorish. (laughs) That's what I should say. It tastes better. It's not just like, be a better person, improve your breakfast.
2: You're listening to a Reasons to Be Cheerful bonus episode in partnership with Oatly. Find out more at Oatly.com forward slash help dad. So to give us the basics on how plant-based diets tie in with tackling the climate crisis, we have campaigner and head of communications for Veganuary, Tony Vanelli. Hello. Hello. You must be exhausted. We join you at, at, at the end of, um, of, of an, presumably a very busy month for you
4: yeah it's been pretty hectic um, we've had one of our, our busiest Januaries yet but it's been very exciting
2: well thanks for um, thanks for making time to talk to us I-, I wondered if you could start by just giving us the basics on how a plant-based diet is a climate-friendly diet
4: Uh, Well, the UN a few years ago released a report and calculated that animal agriculture was responsible for 14.5% of all human generated greenhouse gases. And to put that into perspective, that's the same as the direct emissions from all forms of transport. So every car, plane, ship, and train on the planet combined, so a really big contributor that people often don 't think of front of mind like they do with transport. you know we all know about flying and driving, um, but animal agriculture is as big a contributor, so by reducing the amount of animal products in your diet, you will have a direct impact on reducing your carbon footprint.
2: And, I mean, I'm asking this question for for personal reasons because I've been vegetarian for a long time. I lean vegan, but I'm not wholly there. Um, How big a part does dairy play (laughs) if, if you divorce it from meat?
4: Uh, from a climate perspective, quite a big one. So, cattle aren't the problem, you know, in the main. So, beef and dairy are the two worst for climate change. Both, it's the animals themselves. So, the ruminants produce a lot of gases, produce a lot of methane that they release in various unpleasant ways. Um, and methane's a really strong greenhouse gas. And then the next biggest part of animal agriculture's contribution comes from the feed crops. And so while some beef cattle uh, are still outdoors grazing pasture, the majority of dairy cows are not. So all of their feed has to be grown and processed. And that is a very carbon intensive procedure as well.
3: It's pretty tough on vegetarians, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> like you've, you've made such an ethical choice. You know, 20 years ago, know, you would have been the most ethical person around the dinner In table. The room. I
0: know. We and you're still we a major to, problem.
2: <laughs> used to have the moral high ground. Now we're as, we're as bad as the rest of you. Um, but... You know, I'm I'm trying, and, and part of this whole thing, and I'm I'm guessing part of what you go for with Veganuary as well is people doing what they can and, and making the changes, or even the you know the entire transition at the speed that works for them. I, I promise you, I'm I'm trying. It's, it's very easy for me to feel self loathing, so you know this is just another way in which that is manifesting itself. Um, what what about the arguments that? plant-based food, they can also have a high environmental impact when when you look at things like food miles or, you know, for example, the emissions from producing fertilizer.
4: Yeah, certainly... Uh, vegan doesn't equal virtuous. You know, there are still other factors that need to be taken into consideration. So palm oil is quite a big issue, you know, causes a lot of deforestation, you know, pretty much responsible for the endangered status of the orangutan. And that can be in processed foods of any kind, you know, vegan or not. So that's an important factor. But Usually, a plant-based product, even if it's produced abroad and imported um, and processed, will still have a smaller carbon footprint than an animal product that is produced around the corner from you. Because transport actually is a very small contributor to the f- carbon footprint of animal products. It's only, I mean, less than 10%, again, according to the UN report.
2: So so from a climate perspective, a, a, a really bad vegan is probably less harmful than a pretty ethical meat eater.
4: Exactly. <laughs> well, it depends what else they're doing. That's very true, too, yes. <laughs> Burning tires in
3: the back
2: garden. <laughs> um, so something I wondered about is an area of concern is the, I guess, the economic impact. To people, if if you think about um, meat and dairy production and and farming, a lot of the people whose livelihoods depend on that are in low income jobs. Are are there sort of ideas around how you make this transition to a more plant? based economy that bring those people along with you.
4: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Because actually, they're going to be the ones who are worst hit by climate change as well. You know, that's going to affect their industry in in a very very real way. You know, the climate affects them now every day. But once it changes, then they will be on the front line of that. So there's two programs currently underway in the UK. There's one by the Vegan Society called Grow Green, which is lobbying the government to help subsidize farmers who want to transition to Producing plant proteins and more sustainable forms of protein, because we do grow a lot of high-protein crops very easily in Britain. Peas, are a good example, grow very well here and can be used to make milks and you know meat substitutes and all sorts of things. Um, so, vegan society is campaigning for government help. And then there's a charity called ReFarmed, which is working directly with farmers to help them transition. Um, for example, some dairy farmers now are moving into growing oats and producing oat milk. And this charity, ReFarmed, is helping them logistically to do that.
2: And are you seeing sort of interest in that more generally? Is, is that on the up increase in making that change? Yeah,
4: definitely. I was at a conference just a couple of years ago and there was a whole panel of people who used to be animal farmers and had then transitioned to producing crops. Uh, And there was about eight or 10 people on that panel. And I thought, I mean, this is quite a sign of the times that not only have they made this change, but they're publicly speaking out about it and encouraging other farmers to join them.
2: I mean, I'm I'm guessing in a line of work where things have been done a long way, not just for decades, but for centuries, um, if you make a change or if you say, I'm not sure about the, the, the values that Underpin this in terms of the environment and what we need to do, that must be quite a difficult change, a difficult thing for somebody to stand up and talk about. Absolutely.
4: And it is a, a case of making farmers realize it, it's not personal. It's not when we are talking about the climate impacts of animal farming, you know, it's not a personal slight against them. They're doing something that has been done in their family and on that land for generations. And now the science is showing us that it's not sustainable to do it forever so we all need to work together to help change.
3: And Tony, do you find that middle-aged men are the hardest group to deal with?
4: Oh that's a very hard question I mean, our statistics do bear that out (laughs) so although some individual middle-aged men are absolutely wonderful the data show most of our sign-ups are women, you know, over 80% of our sign-ups are female and certainly I do a number 80%? Yeah
2: (laughs) Oh, so that's that stark. Yeah, that's uh, none of this forty-eight, fifty-two stuff going on here, then. And
4: our and our whole age range is lower than that. So our top sign-up bracket is. Um... Twenty-five to thirty-five. That's where our highest sign-up rate is from. But I do a lot of radio interviews, particularly in January, where the host is a middle-aged man and he tells me how he has a vegan daughter or a vegan wife, or he's the only non-vegan in the household. That's a really common pattern.
3: I <laughs> sort of I feel bad for. I sort of feel bad that we're being down on our own here a bit, Jeff. That as mm. pe- I, 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 I can't accept that I'm middle-aged at thirty-eight.
2: Well, but you, I you're guess not I'm quite. I mean, if, if anything, this podcast is cautionary for you, Matt. We are like uh, the ghost of Christmas future showing you what is coming. And it's up to you to uh, to, to make the necessary changes. Yes. Uh, I, you can I guess shout I out am, the window, so- you boy, the, the largest smoked tofu in Whole Foods. <laughs> Fetch it at once. Here's a shilling.
3: Tony, how important is doing this? I know Veganuary is a, is a pun, and, uh, along with Stocktober and Movember and things like that, and that's important. But is January crucial to the appearance? I think it
4: is crucial to it. That's when people are trying to do positive change in their life, isn't it? It's a new year, a new leaf, you know, those big major changes that people want to make in their life, they sort of associate with a new year. And do people stick with it? our data shows, um, we survey people at the end of their pledge. And every year, it's roughly 50% of people who say they intend to stay with the vegan diet afterwards. And then the rest do reduce their consumption of animal products. So Kantar did a study a couple of years ago, where they actually tracked purchases of people who had given up animal products for January, and found that six months later, they were still consuming less than they had in the six-month period the year before. So it is having a sustained impact, even if people don't stick with veganism.
3: And it's not just middle-aged talk radio presenters that that might be resistant. Um, Other industries may well feel threatened by this, including your father's. He was a butcher. (laughs) I mean, has he taken this very personally?
4: <laughs> I mean I was quite a strident teenager in my beliefs in many ways. So <laughs> I don't think he did take it personally. And I mean in in reality a few years later he actually had to come to me to ask for vegetarian recipes because he had very high cholesterol and there's a history of heart disease in his family. So he had to take it very seriously. So there was never really animosity, you know, because of my diet. My mohawk and facial piercings perhaps <laughs>
2: but did, did you manage to shift maybe not people entirely onto a plant-based diet like b- beyond your dad's health issues D- do you have any examples from your your own family of managing to shift people's attitudes
4: yeah i have two younger sisters and they are both vegan and have been God, so I've been vegan 30 years, so they've probably been vegan 25 years. And they both have one daughter each, and both of those girls are vegan as well. So, well, wow,
2: But no, you've got, not got any middle-aged men for us. This is what we're after here.
4: <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. And not, not even any men, unfortunately.
2: Oh, this is,
3: we, we are... We, it's hard not to conclude we are the problem.
4: <laughs> I I don't think it's men per se, not individual men. It's, it's our culture, isn't it? It's our society. It's much harder for men to express compassion for animals, concern about the planet. You know, these are seen as somewhat soft topics. And in some male workplaces, it can be you know really difficult to have these kind of conversations to bring in a carton of oat milk to a building site i mean they're going to rip at you all day long so i don't think it's individual men i think it is more some of the stereotypes we've built up around what men should be
2: we did find when we were doing the research for this conversation we did find there is a vegan builders collective in manchester wow <laughs> so Obviously there have been builders who have been stigmatized for taking oat drink to the building site. They've thought what can we do about this? And um they've they've organized.
4: That's amazing.
2: Just to be slightly counterintuitive, a lot of blokes who work on building sites are oh,
3: they're physically fit guys. You know, they're muscly, they they care about how they look they could end up actually being the pioneers, couldn't they? Because if people perceive that uh, a plant-based diet is a better way to look after your body, to lose weight, to be able to sculpt your muscles in this Instagram selfie culture, people like builders can end up being at the front line of convincing other people to to, to swap their diet.
4: Yeah, definitely. And we certainly saw that last year when a film called The Game Changers came out because that focused entirely on elite athletes at the top of their game on a plant-based diet so there were bodybuilders american football players you know people who were very toned very sculpted performing intense sports all on a plant-based diet and we saw a real increase in men showing an interest in veganism after that
3: tony what else should we be thinking about in terms of making our diet climate friendly we've talked about food miles but is there anything else we should be taking into consideration as consumers
4: I guess even amongst some of the plant-based products, you know, there will be variations that are more environmentally friendly than others. So milks is a good example. I've drunk soy milk for years because that was all that was available. Um, But something like almond milk is very water intensive. So it still uses less water than dairy. But out of all the plant milks, it does use much more water. And there are concerns about the use of bees to pollinate the almond trees. There's a lot of, in the US, there's a lot of industrial bee production where they ship them across the country in lorries to pollinate plants for them. And almond is, a, you know, a really big culprit for that. So amongst the plant milks, you know, something like oat is a better choice climate-wise, um, then probably followed by soya, and then some of the other nut milks above almond milk. And
3: Can you finish by giving us a reason to be cheerful? I know it's not easy when we're talking about the climate crisis, but is there anything, any shred of hope you can give us?
4: Absolutely, because everyone I talk to, I mean, 20 years ago, if you told someone you were a vegan, they either didn't know what it was or they thought you were a complete extremist lunatic. (laughs) But now when I tell people I'm vegan, honest to God, everyone says the same thing. I've really cut back on the amount of meat I'm eating you know, I, I hardly eat any meat anymore. I'm really trying to reduce. So that mindset is there in society now that we all know the amount of animal products we eat isn't sustainable. And everyone is trying to cut back. We're successful to different degrees. But you know, the will is there. So the easier we can make it for people to make those change, it will happen.
2: Tony Vanelli thank you so much for coming and talking to us on behalf of middle-aged men and almost middle-aged men in, in, in Matt's case. We will go out there. We'll try and see if we can make a, date, a difference to that data you get next veganuary and the one after. And uh, I, th- I think we will you know, definitely use that line that you have permission to be a bad vegan.
4: <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Reasons to be
2: cheerful in partnership with Oatly. Find out more at oatly.com forward slash helpdad.
3: We're going to hear now from someone who's been at the sharp end of getting people to think about a plant-based diet. Claire Taylor runs the Jigsaw Curzon House Day Nursery in Chester. Claire, welcome to the show. Um, You decided to make your business plant-based for environmental reasons last year. Tell us the story behind that decision.
5: So we've done projects over the years, like Plastic Three Award, we um, do One Tree Planted, we give back to the environment. But When I actually looked into it further, we realized that the biggest impact we could have was taking uh, meat and dairy out of our diet. So we're real foodies um, and sort of, you know, the children, what you put in a child is really important and it sort of, you know, affects their all-round development. So I'm plant-based and sort of thought, you know, I had toyed with the idea thinking, well, we could sort of, you know, drop the dairy. And then I thought, you know what? It isn't about being half hearted. It's about absolutely being passionate about something and going for it. So we wanted to sort of make sure that we were covering all our bases. Um, So we thought, what will the parents be concerned about? Um, And no matter how much you research this and how much you look into it, you never really know what's going to come back. Um, so we went to a nutritionist a dietitian we had all of the menus looked at that we were thinking of putting in place but when it actually came to um, delivering it to the parents blindsided is probably the uh, the right uh, way of um, approaching what happened next
3: and it wasn't just the parents that reacted to this this became a, a big media story when you take that decision to change the menu at your Effectively, your business that is based in Chester. Did it ever occur to you, this might end up in the Daily Mail?
5: No, did it not? In a million years did I ever imagine I'd be sat on uh, the breakfast couch telling everybody, trying to defend my decision to feed children healthy food.
3: And what's the business impact been? Some people might presume that, you know, if parents are enraged, they might take their business elsewhere. But equally, it's a great advert for you. Has business increased as a result of this?
5: Absolutely. We sort of knew it would not suit everybody uh, but we knew there were a lot of people out there as passionate about it as you know as we are so we had to have lots of meetings with the parents you know we served their the food that we were eating and a lot of it was very positive but you did get people that came to those meetings that were 100% not budging they wouldn't touch the food they wouldn't really take in the information we were having with sharing with them even the night that we had it Uh, One of the meetings, I was having death threats um, by the nursery telephone. Um, So halfway through the meeting, the phone was ringing and I picked it up. And and it was it was somebody telling me that I should die because I was um, I was a child abuser. And that really what we were doing wasn't was was, was wasn't justified in any way, shape or form. It was horrific. It was really, really quite scary at points. I had people hiding in the bushes of the nursery. What, uh, what, were they, what were they doing hiding in the bushes? What, spying on you? Yeah, we had newspapers sort of hanging out, trying to speak to parents. We We obviously did have one very vocal parent. This is how it all started. We had a very vocal parent who, rather than come to us and say, you know, I've got concerns. Can you please, you know, tell me why this is happening? Have you done this? <clears throat> um, went straight to the newspaper saying that they were uh, absolutely infuriated that we they hadn't been consulted. Um, and uh, how could we do this? We were going to basically ruin their child's life. And um, and I don't think they actually realized the impact they were going to have um, uh, on what happened next, which is obviously then, you know, the local newspaper sent it to the, uh, you know, the, the nationals and then the nationals sort of sent me come on the telly. So it was all just a bit like that. But the actual parent that started it all um, never left. She uh, still continues to come to the nursery and loves the food. Looking back now, I can smile about it and I can see, you know, I don't regret it at all. It was the best thing that we did. Um, and it, it's, it's helped educate the children in so many different ways and the parents. It has a ripple effect. So the implementation of it going into the diet of the children at nursery Ellen allowed us to share all of our menus with the parents. So we have an app. Um, and encourage them to basically cook the meals that we were preparing. And it has now people haven't gone full plant based, but they've decided to take meat and dairy out of their diet, maybe one or two days a week. So, you know, we have had an impact, we've had a huge impact on our consumption, we reduced our carbon footprint by um, 56%, uh, just by taking dairy and meat off our menu, the children are fit and healthy. And in its We now have um, two large allotments. So um, the children grow their own food. So they literally see it coming from the soil, go into the kitchen, how they prepare it. And then it's on their plate, which which, again, what can there possibly be wrong with a child understanding that veg comes from the earth and it's given to you on a plate and it's good for you?
3: And this has obviously been a really extreme experience for you in terms of dealing with the public and dealing with customers and how people react to change and and how decisions are are made and presented. But what have you learned about how to change people's minds and how to bring people with you?
5: What I have learned is I think there's small things I probably would have done differently at the beginning. Like I said, I think I was naive in really understanding taking that choice away from people how much it would upset them. So I would have maybe done it a little bit softer, maybe introduced it, you know, a couple of days a week. Um, But as far as getting people involved now, like I said, it's like this ripple effect. This is what we need to do. You know, you watch David Attenborough, you know, he's talking about if we don't make change, then it's going to be irreversible. This has to happen. Um, And without sort of making you know a massive change to your life you can do so much every every little bit does help you know by dropping um, dairy um out of your, your your meals you you are saving water because of feeding the cattle and all these different things I don't think people I think it's education that's what's lacking and they think it's really difficult to make those changes but it really isn't it is just simple little things that we can all do that will have a really big impact for the future of our children.
2: One of the things we're talking about is middle-aged men particularly and their reluctance to, to, to think about the plant-based diet. Uh-huh. In a nursery, I'm guessing parents tend to be a little bit younger, so maybe you haven't nudged up against that so much. But is there anything to say that men are a little bit more resistant to this than, than women in your experience?
5: depends to be honest my husband's plant-based and he's a big man you know he's he certainly doesn't lack in muscles and being able to get the protein he needs and everything out of a good diet the plant-based diet I think men generally are well it's not manly to be vegan, is it for goodness sake you've got to be a hippie and you know sort of glide around everywhere with (laughs) jostics you know I think even when we went it was funny because even when we went to the um the breakfast news my husband and I walked in and they were like, ah, oh, you weren't what we were expecting. And I said, oh, what were you expecting? But it's, people's, people's views are changing. <laughs> and I think the generation now um,
2: are a lot more open minded. A, a final question. Um... If this isn't too simplistic a way of looking at it, is is there anything that we can learn from children around this? Because toddlers can be very resistant to to change and very stubborn. I know this from experience. Um, Is there anything we can take away from the way that they responded to the changes you made?
5: Do you know what? With a child, you have to present things 10 times before they will actually understand and go, oh, actually, yeah, I do like that. So anybody that thinks, well, I've tried it, they don't like it. Unless you've tried it multiple times, you're not going to make a change at all. And that's the same Mm -hmm. with adults.
3: Mushrooms are terrible. I mean, it just... Yeah,
5: but I don't like mushrooms at all. I've grown up my whole life hating mushrooms. But... I eat mushrooms are the main dish. So say you have a shepherd's pie. Now it's called a shepherdless pie, and that the main part of it is green lentils and mushrooms. But you would not know it is a mushroom because it's blended. So you blend the mushrooms so they look like mince. My deputy at the nursery, she can't even look at a mushroom. Uh, she sat there and I said, "Don't try this. This is one of the dishes." And she's like, "Oh my god, it's amazing! What what is that? What's the mince?" And I went, "Right, Kay." yourself I said it's mushrooms and she went oh my god went, I'm going to
3: the Daily Mail exactly she was <laughs> horrified
5: and I said that's why I didn't tell you I said because you wouldn't
2: have eaten it I, th- I think we've got at least part of the answer there we have to somehow get middle-aged men to try these things 10 times and then it becomes Stockholm syndrome try it 10 times and if that doesn't work basically blend it and lie to them about what's in it exactly
5: <laughs> hide it hide it <laughs>
2: Great. Claire Taylor, thank you so much for uh, for telling us the story. You're very uh, welcome. Jigsaw Curzon House Day Nursery. Reasons to be cheerful in partnership with Oatly. Find out more at Oatly.com forward slash helpdad. We are thrilled to be joined now by a social psychologist who is one of the leading world experts on steering the conversation around a plant-based diet. Her TED Talk on the subject is in the top 1% of TED Talks worldwide. She's written best-selling books on it, including The Brilliant! Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, which has just been republished as a 10th anniversary edition with an introduction by Yuval Noah Harari, no less. And he is just one of her famous fans. She's been praised by Jonathan Safran Foer, Ezra Klein, Marianne Williamson. And she's a great person to talk to on this because of her work on the psychology of interpersonal relationships. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. There's a lot to dig into with this Oatley research. And I'd like to start with the headline that men of a certain age are less likely to be open to a more plant-based, climate-friendly diet. I mean, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? I suppose we all get a bit more set in our ways as we get older, but why, why would men be more resistant to this than women, do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the reluctance of, of middle-aged and, and older men in general as a group, there, there seem to be two key factors on c- contributing to this higher level of resistance and they're gender and generation. Now, research on gender has shown that women are much more likely than men to be vegan for a variety of reasons. Um, Meat has historically been linked with masculinity. Um, it's been associated with man the hunter and with ideas of strength and virility, power, dominance and control. And These are all central elements to traditional notions of masculinity or, or to what it means to be a man.
2: We, we see that in uh, your home country of the United States, political leaders. I th- think it would be considered political suicide for a presidential candidate, not at some point uh, on the campaign trail to to be seen eating meat so that that kind of feeds into what you're saying there
0: Absolutely. And, you know, men have been historically socialized to associate this idea of being a man or being real, a real man um, with um, ideas of, of power and dominance and control. I mean, this is really what traditional masculinity has been been organized around. And by contrast, traditional, you know, femininity, femininity has been associated more with eating vegetables which have been associated with passivity and with weakness it's it's
2: fascinating because the, you know they're not automatically things That should belong together?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think to really understand why a certain group, and here we're talking about men who are middle-aged and older, um, may be more resistant or or reluctant to move toward a plant-based or or vegan diet. It's it's first important to understand why all people tend to resist moving in that direction. And of course, some people are more resistant than others, and different people have different um, main reasons for the resistance, but all people tend to be resistant. And I just want to take like less than two minutes to briefly explain a little bit about my research on the psychology of eating animals. And of course, there are a lot of reasons for this. But one key reason, which is what I found in my research, is what I came to call carnism, essentially the opposite of veganism. And it's structured like other isms, such as sexism or or patriarchy and classism. These isms that cause people to unknowingly act against their more rational and empathic natures. So basically carnism is structured to increase the chances that people who care about animals and or who care about climate change nevertheless continue eating animals and it causes us to feel highly resistant to any information that would free us from this box.
2: One one of the things that's come out of this is that th- these these men of a certain age uh which I I fall into the bracket um they don't consider the environmental impact of what they eat or, or drink, typically. Now, so given that, roughly speaking, in our society, we all have access to the same information, we all have access to the same media, what, what do you think is going on here with regards specifically to the, the climate crisis? What is the, uh, I suppose, cognitive dissonance, Is the phrase. Um, so maybe give me an answer and then we can kind of do a beginner's guide to cognitive dissonance.
0: Sure, sure. I mean it's it that's a great question. So um we do all have access, or many of us have access to the same information, but we're not necessarily receiving all the same information. I mean, as we know, we're we're all fairly siloed, right? So so some of the question for me is, you know, is is information, are outreach campaigns about climate change, for example, you know, are they targeting specific demographics and and not others? Um so, in terms of cognitive dissonance, this is very interesting. Cognitive dissonance is the, the internal discomfort we feel when our behaviors are not in alignment with our values, right? So, if we think I'm an ethical person or I, I'm not somebody who contributes to unnecessary harm to the environment, to animals, to others, um, and yet we continue to engage in a behavior which does, in fact, directly contribute to these problems, then we're going to feel this internal discomfort. And when we feel cognitive dissonance or experience that, we have three choices as to how to mitigate that um, or manage it. You know, one is we can change our values and our self-concept and think to ourselves, well, I'm just not a very good person. I'm not a very ethical person who's really concerned with justice. And most people aren't going to do that. We can also change our behaviors so that they're more in alignment with our values. In this case, we're talking about eating less or no animal products. Um, Or we can change our perception of behaviors. So we become defensive, we justify our behaviors, we deny the negative impact they're having. And, you know, it's very interesting, um, is that some research has shown that when confronted with um, cognitive dissonance, or an Any incompatible um, beliefs and behaviors, uh, men are more likely to get defensive than women, and women are more likely to accept responsibility and modify their behavior. And again, this is not saying all men and all women. The research just just shows. I just don't think that's true. I just don't don't think think that's true at all. I I just think this is typical.
3: This is just the sort of thing that Mm -hmm. we're constantly. I'm joking, by the way. I don't want you to think that I'm not joking. (laughs) I think we were both trying to play up the defensiveness there. Um, okay. Melanie. Um, I was pretending to be a defensive man there, Melanie. I obviously pretended too you, well.
2: You did, a, you did a
0: really good job. It was, we were too, we were too
2: convincing, one, I think, is, is the problem.
0: Well, I, I should say that the reason I believed it is because it's not unusual for that to happen. So it it wouldn't be the first time, and it wouldn't be the 10th time. Oh, so. Man.
2: Well, this this is very interesting. This this defensiveness is something perhaps that underpins what we're talking about. So, something I'm interested in is social contagion. How much can a group, and that group at one end of the spectrum could just be a family, uh, on the, on the under, other end of the spectrum could be, you know, a, a country, a society. How much can a a switch in in a group like that help nudge? men's attitudes. If everybody in the family or everybody in the workplace is, is thinking about this in a different way, how likely are you to go along with it as opposed to uh, being defensive like uh, me and matt just at a fine performance of that uh...
0: i mean that's a good question i don't know the answer i don't know what percentage and i think it would really it would really depend on the person and the, the and the people who are trying to influence them right so so there has been some research done showing that men are less likely to be influenced by people if those people who are trying to influence them are women um you know versus their own peer group so i mean this raises a, a number of, of interesting questions i mean what we do see is Is that you know support for um, more plant-based diets is growing significantly, Um, and this is no doubt um, at least in part because more and more people are adopting plant-based diets is becoming more and more normalized, and there's less peer pressure to kind of conform to the old traditional norms of, of masculinity.
3: You have conversations about this with people all the time. What tends to work?
0: So if you're having a conversation with somebody whose ideology is different from yours, whose beliefs are different from yours, you know, one, one tip that can really facilitate that conversation is to remember that the, the process of a conversation or of a communication is more important than the content. All communication has these two parts. The content is what you're talking about and the process is how you're talking. In uh, any communication, the process matters more. So if you think about a conversation, maybe you've had like six months ago, you might have entirely forgotten the content, but you probably still remember how you felt in that communication because the process determines how you feel. When your process is healthy, your goal is not to be right which means to make the other person wrong or to win, which means to make the other person lose. You're not debating. When your process is healthy, your goal is mutual understanding. It needs to be non-shaming. And so, you know, really approaching a conversation like this one, for example, not with the assumption that middle to older, you know, middle-aged to older men somehow don't care. Please look at Jeff when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're terribly different. I'm probably older, actually. Um, Not to say that middle-aged to older men um, don't care necessarily that they're more selfish or apathetic, right? But to really approach the conversation in a way that's non-shaming and to be curious, you know, to approach it with curiosity. So what is it? What is it that makes you resistant? Are you aware of these statistics? How do you interpret and understand this information? So,
2: so I guess this is why we get nowhere where we see Facebook posts. Um, we were just talking to Claire who, who <laughs> uh, made her nursery fully vegan and she was telling us about the kind of horror show that unfolding on, unfolded on their Facebook page. I guess this is why that isn't an effective way to, to nudge somebody in the direction of change.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I always say this. I I mean, I'm never like, you know, not surprised when I think about the fact that we have to, most of us have to learn complicated geometry we'll probably never need to use and we don't get a single lesson in how to be healthy relational beings and communicate effectively. So like, most of us have zero formal training in how to communicate and relate with others effectively. Um, and that means how to have a healthy process. And so then you add Facebook into the mix with with people who are not really, you know, communicating that compassionately to begin with. And it's a recipe for disaster.
3: But it's so hard. I mean, I really identify with this. Really hard if you're discussing something and not necessarily a plant-based diet or not. It could be a f- game of football, it's really hard not to feel that your perspective is right, and to want the other person to go. Actually, you're right. I, you know, I feel that physically sometimes. You know, <laughs> you can feel it when up inside. You think, well, this person's wrong. But how often does that well, happen? I don't know. I mean, I don't know but, you know, on a small level, it, probably quite regularly. Maybe I'm just a piece <laughs> of work. But you know, I, I can identify with that as, as a in a conversation where you think no, this person's wrong and I need to convince them.
0: Well, think about how you feel if you perceive somebody is feeling that way when they're talking to you. Okay. If you, you get the sense that somebody is like, I know that I'm right and I'm just waiting for you to figure out that you're wrong.
3: Yeah, I get annoyed.
0: How, how, receptive, that, <laughs> how receptive would you be?
3: Deeply unreceptive. I mean, I would be. I would be. You know, I, this, this is all in my own head. I'm sure on the outside, I'd be perfectly reasonable and very polite. and <laughs> If anything, probably just pretend to agree just to bring the conversation to its end.
0: If you're having a disagreement with somebody, and you really you can want them to fully understand your perspective, and if your perspective is based on on facts and reason, you know, chances are they will land. Um, in the same place that you are. Um, but but the first goal needs to be mutual understanding. But this is what you're asking. You're saying, I really want you to understand what the world looks like through my eyes. I really want you to get it. This is really what I believe, and this is why I believe it. And I need to know that you really get it. And from that place, you can have the conversation about, you know, facts beyond just understanding each other's perspective.
3: And if not, just change the subject.
0: Or or break up or whatever. Yeah, walk out. <laughs>
3: You're asking people to be as vegan as possible, which is a very reasonable slogan, a very reasonable request. But given the urgency of the climate crisis, should it not be a stronger form of words?
0: Well, um, you know, the activist Henry Spira once said, if you go into a negotiation asking for all or nothing, you'll probably end up with nothing. So, I mean, if... And asking people to be as vegan as possible is really the only rational and respectful ask you can make, because nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. Um, and if everyone in the world were truly as vegan as possible, the world would be vegan fairly quickly. So um, it's usually also an ask, and this is what I you know, wanted to say in terms of especially speaking to the, this particular demographic that we're talking about, saying something like go vegan or go plant-based is asking for a change of identity. Among people who probably don't automatically want to be identified with a particular ideological minority group like vegans, you know, oh, my God, now I have to become a vegan if I feel like I want to be a part of the, the solution. And um, that's probably not going to work. But if you ask them to be as vegan as possible, as plant based as possible, you know, who's going to say no to that? Um you can just not change at all because maybe not changing isn't possible for you.
2: Melanie Joy, it has been a a fascinating conversation. The work you do specifically on steering people towards a plant-based diet is so interesting. I recommend that people uh, look you up. There's loads of stuff online on your website and the TED talk you've done on your books. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys are, are doing this podcast and, and really helping to open up this conversation even further. The timing couldn't be better. And uh, just, it's so important. So thank you. Reasons to be cheerful in partnership with Oatly. Find out more at oatly.com forward slash
2: helpdad. Well, Matt, <laughs> yes. where are you now compared to where we started?
3: It's a real insight into how you manage... The conversation without sounding too much like an ex-member of party political staff. But I thought it was really interesting Claire's point about the thing she would do differently next time was just not to say that here's change, accept it, even though she was in the right and it's her business and everything else. And the reaction to it was clearly disproportionate and insane. But just that, that process of how you bring people with you. And I think this is something that will run through this podcast and so many conversations that listeners have, i mean it's the essence of politics isn't it how do you bring people with you how do you convince someone not only that it's the right thing to do but also that it's in their self-interest and um i think ultimately in that is a reflection for myself is how do i make myself more open and receptive and and less defensive
2: it was very interesting hearing melanie especially just then talk about that and um and and talk about what you tend to take away from a, a conversation or interaction over time isn't the content, but how it made you feel. I've heard Jerry Seinfeld, the stand-up comedian, <laughs> I think a line he has used on stage is that the tone of voice that he uses on stage is not acceptable in his own house. Like, <laughs> That's and, such a good point. And, and there's, there's something around that, isn't it? That when, when we have these conversations, when we want to try and change people's behaviour... It's, it's not about being right,
0: it's- and also
3: it's an acknowledgement that and, and this is something that so many people come into terms with. people vote emotionally. People's interactions with democracy and with life and with authority, however they perceive it, is a deeply emotional thing. And a lot of us find that actually quite a threatening thing. You say, well, this should be about reason and logic, but as human beings, we are emotional. <laughs> Bags of flesh, and that is something that that policymakers, that decision makers, that anyone who's trying to convince you of anything on any level has to understand: is that we are fundamentally emotional, and that is not something to be feared. That is
2: just a fact that has to be engaged with. So, do you feel like you've had a visit from the ghost of middle age future here? <laughs>
3: I don't know I mean you've kind of got a bit of a wispy beard are, are, you, are you are you the ghost of middle age future talking to me a little bit I think if you're looking for personal reflections hard not to conclude that blokes are the problem
2: <laughs> not to be defensive about that you know to be a good man and if you were to channel your inner middle aged man and on this, this occasion maybe that inner Middle-aged man could be Ed. Um, <laughs> Shall we give your inner Ed the, the last word on this? You know what?
3: Before that, I, I was slightly worried that listeners to this might think, is he going to interview people as Ed? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go, Melanie, look, I think it's
1: great work you're doing. Uh, come on. <laughs> I, I don't think people need to get behind that. Um, but, Luke, um, all I will say,
3: I'll simply say this to you, Jeff up to you up listening at home you know what I mean this feels so rude to impersonate Ed in his absence on his own podcast <laughs> I'm going to hell you know if it's not if it's not for still eating the occasional bit of meat when my foot allows it it's for basically coming into another man's house and impersonating him to his closest and most loved
1: people uh, but look uh, 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 you know, uh, I mean I've done it already so I might as well continue uh, it's been a great honour, Jeff, to be here today. And if you ever want me to stand or sit in for Ed, uh, as Ed. Uh, you know, it would be a great, a great order.
2: Well, I have learned from Ed, and as he always says when he's put on the spot like that, we will take it under advisement. I want to thank my fantastic guest co-host, Matt Ford, and thanks to Oatly for suggesting and for being our sponsor for this special episode. I, I think the conversations have been brilliant and thought-provoking. It's all been inspired by the research that Oatly have done, and you can read more about that and also look at all the Help Dad stuff, which is, is very funny, and maybe just maybe it will give you some ideas about dealing with old curmudgeonly men like me, and almost Matt, uh, go to Oatley.com slash dad. And thanks to our brilliant guests, Tony Vanelli from V Veganuary, Claire Taylor from Jigsaw Curzon House Day Nursery, and Melanie Joy. And I can't recommend enough that you delve into Melanie's work on carnism. Her TED Talk is just fantastic and her book why we love dogs eat pigs and wear cows has just been republished as a 10th anniversary edition with a new introduction by Yuval Harari this special episode of reasons to be cheerful was produced researched and edited by Gareth Evans from
0: 1860.